Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Asif Bayat of the University of Illinois about his new book, Revolutionary Life, The Everyday of the Arab Spring. We also talk to Mara Youssef, author of a new article, Unlikely Feminist Coalitions. And finally, we hear from Thomas Juno about the Houthi movement and the recent developments in the war in Yemen. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Asaf Bayat of the Sociology Department at the University of Illinois, author of the new book, Revolutionary Life, The Everyday of the Arab Spring, just published by Harvard University Press. Uh, Asaf, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So it's a real pleasure to see this book after following your writing for so many years. And um, tell us a little bit about this and how it fits into your ongoing research. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea, frankly, of this book uh, came out very early on uh, after the outbreak of the uh, Arab revolutions, especially after Tunisia and uh, Egypt. Uh, when immediately I visited. And I thought that I would uh, be uh, thinking about uh, not only, you know, the big picture and how these revolutions impact the regime type and, uh, and uh, you know, political transformation and change, but especially uh, I would be interested in, uh, you know, what, uh, what was the role of you know, uh, the ordinary people uh, in, these, in these revolutions and in what way um, they were involved in, uh, in it and, uh, and in, what, in what way revolution impacted them, you know. Uh, what, what did revolution, you know, mean for them? I think this idea had come from my earlier work on uh, street politics, which I had done something on the especially the role of the uh, urban poor on the Iranian revolution of 1979. So I had in some way the idea, I had the model and I began to uh, research about it. And, uh, you know, going back and forth and, uh, you know, collecting information and so forth. But as I was uh, sort of start, as I started thinking uh, about um, the uh, uh, somewhat the outcome and the kind of, uh, the results that uh, I was getting uh, out of uh, my uh, investigation, um, I was also uh, not uh, comfortable in some way in understanding the meaning in generally generally about uh, these revolutions uh, historically, and uh, because I saw. Uh, you know, certain differences uh, between these revolutions and the one that I had uh, somewhat uh, studied and participated in and so on. So So this actually took me some way away from this uh, research that I had started about this particular book. So in the process, I thought that I need first to write a different book. And um, and that different book, uh, was aimed to uh, uh, understanding the meaning of the Arab revolutions, uh, the kind of uh, particular characteristics that they have, 
and the differences that they had, in my view, from the earlier revolutions that I had uh, studied and read about. And that's where so you that, that whole concept of the revolutions. Exactly, exactly. So that other book became a revolution without revolutionaries that was published uh, earlier on 2017. And uh, when I finished that, uh, then I continued uh, with this one, yeah. And there is, of course, a logic because the uh, revolution without revolutionaries, uh, I think justifiably sort of deals with the more kind of macro structural uh, or political state-centric sort of uh, approach and also comparative and historical, kind of the big picture largely. Uh, and, you know, when I kind of uh, finished that book 2017, of course, there was a debate as to whether or not, you know, these uh, revolutions have failed, succeeded or whatever. And by and large, the verdict was they have really failed. And I think uh, there is a very good reason to think uh, uh, that they did it as far as uh, if we look at it, you know, politically and at the top level, at the, uh, you know, at the level of whether or not we have reached uh, any, you know, democratic polity in any of these societies, even, even Tunisia, right? Um, but, um, but, but my kind of work on the kind of a micro level, at uh, the kind of societal level, at the level of everyday uh, sort of politics and everyday life, would give me kind of a different uh, vision, a different idea about, first of all, the meaning of these uh, revolutions. And I think it would somewhat um, question my own assumption about the failure, right? Uh, or the end of these revolution or the continuity of these revolutions, right? Um, because that perspective, uh, I think, when you look at from that perspective, it seems that it still it is ongoing in some way. And um, there has been, I think, uh, very, I think, important changes uh, at the societal level uh, in terms of you know, certain practices that people learned as a result of the revolution. Uh, how you know, a number of uh, people, including women, for instance, question, you know, certain norms, um, uh, how young people acquired certain subjectivities, you know, certain new ideas, certain imaginations. And I think that level of imagination, that uh, thinking about kind of different uh, alternative uh, or different or alternative order to me is the meaning of revolution, something, you know, thinking about something different, right? And at that level, uh, uh, I, I thought that um, uh, uh, in investigating on that would uh, nuance our uh, perception or our concept of uh, revolution. It's a very uh, different way of thinking about what revolution is, like moving right. away, as you said, from kind of the macro level and do they overthrow the, the deep state, right. do they create a new political system, and this idea of centering the idea of revolution around indiv individual subjectivity, I mean, it's a very interesting methodological move. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, individual, I 
you mean societal, I mean societal, because it's thus individual in the sense of, you know, fragmented and, you know, people thinking about themselves. This is still, still collective, uh, but personal, you mean? Yes. Uh, personal, yeah. In that respect, yeah, it is very important. I mean, this is uh, something which uh, earlier on, uh, philosophers like Alain Badu uh, have talked about, you know, seeing revolution or, you know, uh, in, in the sense of an event, an event that opens up uh, subjectively new possibilities, right? Uh, uh, thinking about new kind of order, a new order of things. And I think this is extremely, really uh, significant. And that, in some ways, I said complements. I do not deny that. And I think still I believe that a narrative of a revolution at the level of this state, at the level of regime change and so on, is absolutely indispensable. It is necessary. Uh, but I think it is not sufficient. Uh, I think we need to complement or complete this notion by looking not only at uh, the top, the top, but also the bottom. Huh? And this would give us, I think, a better understanding uh, and better understanding of not only a revolution, but better tools for us to uh, produce narratives. Uh, and um, to see perhaps, you know, uh, you know, the differences of change, uh, the top and the bottom, and what this difference would entail, you know, politically, you know, right. in the, after the revolution. So one of the things that uh, that's important about the way you approach this is you don't talk about these societies as a single coherent entity. Uh, you disaggregate it, urban versus rural and uh, a social class by gender. And um, and so it, it really does play out quite differently in, in these different sectors. Um, maybe one place that we could start uh, to really talk about this is in your discussion of kind of the urban poor the, the or the kind of the middle class poor, which really play a central role in your revolutionary narrative. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and where they fit. Uh, obviously, you've been studying that particular sector of society, as you said, going all the way back to life and politics, um, and you, right. you saw them change over over the decades. Absolutely. Yes, I think, uh, uh, I mean, before going into this, which is very central, I think, to my analysis, is what you uh, refer to as uh, the fact that in the book, and I think not just me, probably everybody is doing looking at a variety of social forces and groups that participated in the revolution. And in fact, it, this is the magic of revolution, isn't it? That there are different groups with different interests in a different subjectivities, and suddenly they come together and coalesce. And that is magical. Mm -hmm. And I think also discovering the logic of it, you know, how, you know, um, you know, uh, young and old, right, or elderly, men and women, ruler and all they see something yeah. in common. It's not and, just the activists, it's like all society coming together for that one magical moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and, and that, of course, that they generate, uh, you know, uh, uh, in some way, both abstract and concrete concepts, shall we say, sharp uh, people. Mm -hmm. all the time, right? 
But interestingly, of course, these sharp, these people, these uh, uh, groups that coalesce in that magical moment, of course, on the morrow of revolution, they will seek their own, you know, sectoral interests and conflicts with the start and so forth. Yeah. Um, but one significant group that participated in it, I think, uh, that I think historically in the context of the Middle East, and I think in, now in the context of perhaps most of the countries of the global south, is uh, what I say called middle class poor. Um, I think in some way it is a kind of new formation, um, perhaps in the last, I don't know, three decades or so. Uh, that is, this is uh, the kind of uh, uh, a class that has larger educational capital uh, and knowledge capital, information capital, uh, meaning that these are educated people who know about the world, uh, who a lot of them maybe have been graduated from the universities uh, yeah, uh, or other institutions of higher education. Uh, who are very well versed in, you know, uh, new informa information technologies. Their image uh, of the world is different from their parents. Their uh, consumption patterns or the desire for consumption, <laughs> consumption, consumption is different from their parents. However, uh, these kind of middle class dreamers uh, and uh, people who have, you know, middle class somewhat habitus are forced by economic necessity uh, and poverty to live actually the life of their parents, of the poor, uh, concretely living, for instance, in the Ashwaiyat uh, or uh, being engaged in jobs that are very precarious in the informal sector as taxi drivers, as fruit sellers, as so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, this to me is very important formation. And uh, I think uh, potentially politi uh, politically very much charged. They are very much politically charged. And to me also, what is interesting is that these, uh, this class kind of bridges and um, bring, connects uh, the world of you know, um, informality, poverty, uh, and precarity to the world of university uh, discussion, to the world of uh, sort of um, uh, world politics, uh, discussion about uh, to internet, to world of consumption. And uh, this connectivity I think is uh, extremely uh, significant. But also, uh, largely ignored, as you point out, both by ruling elites and by the traditional opposition elites um, in, in many of these countries. That's right. I think, I think there has been, maybe because it is a new formation, there has been kind of less knowledge about them and their potential political proclivities, their political tendencies, and uh, they have not been sort of... Um, taken uh, very, serious, very seriously. And, uh, and I think there is more and more, I think, recognition of it. And uh, I'm actually engaged uh, currently within, you know, activist intellectual in Iran. Mm. that actually, uh, there is a lot of discussion about this particular group 
and their role in the more recent uh, uprising, especially 2019. Uh, yeah, I think what in the Arab world, I think they started much earlier, and in particular in Tunisia. So when you start looking at uh you know, the signs of revolutionary change within this social formation and within these different groups, um, you, you really trace it through in each of the chapters. You look, for example, at youth, at the poor, at women, at uh, kind of uh, gay and lesbian communities and marginalized communities. Um, give, us what, give us some examples of how you see um, this kind of new revolutionary change happening at this level of subjectivity. Right. So the reason why I think uh, I was, you know, focused particularly on, you know, certain uh, social uh, marginalized groups, I call them uh, subaltern groups, uh, is not only, of course, uh, uh, they have uh, had concretely, historically important role in these uh, revolutions, um, but also uh, I uh, analytically and yeah. Uh, I was interested to explore and think uh, as to what is their particular relationship uh, with a revolution. Uh, in other words, youth and revolution or women and revolution or poor and revolution. In what way, if you wanted to kind of theorize, yeah, uh, how they behave and how uh, their approach to, uh, you know, a revolutionary movement somewhat is informed by their positionality as poor, as youth, or as uh, women. So that was kind of a, uh, an analytical sort of um, uh, lens that I wanted to take and uh, tried. We'll see <laughs> uh, how it has come out, you know. Uh, but uh, concretely speaking, uh, I think it's just fascinating to explore, uh, you know, in what way the lives of these social groups uh, after the uprisings uh, changed or did not change and so on. I think it's worth uh, exploring this. I think on the issue of women, probably there's a lot of work has been done. Yeah, uh, we have, and uh, uh, also youth as well. Uh, but, uh, but as I, you know, have uh, I, you know, suggested in this uh, book, uh, you know, often, uh, you know, the approach is kind of the social, the political role of young people, not as such youth politics, you know what I mean? Uh, in what way being young, huh? in what way they, uh, it, it shapes, you know, their particular approach to revolutions, yeah? Uh, how, for instance, uh, at a certain time, uh, they uh, uh, have been, they are endowed by what I've called, uh, um, what is called a, a youth affordance, their particular abilities, you know, physical and, uh, uh, and um, sociological abilities that is not being responsible, right? You know what I mean? They are not parents. They are not children either. You see what I mean? And and and, and this sociological sort of uh, uh, stage in which these young people uh, gives them a certain degree of freedom. You know, uh, to be able to risk things, uh, which if they were parents they wouldn't have. 
yeah. If they, if they had been children, they would have been prevented by their elders, yeah. So, 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 so that it makes them, you know, it gives them certain kind of extraordinary abilities uh, compared to, you know, other social groups. And we've seen it empirically how they have been involved. And yet, we also see, uh, we also see this incredible degree of um, disappointment and disenchantment, an early disappointment and dis disenchantment, huh? uh, which to me, uh, this uh, has to do with their relationship uh, to the elders, uh, to the elders that on the morrow of revolution, uh, the you know, older leaders basically expect these young people to be active and uh, bring revolution to the fruition. And when it is over, then these people are supposed to go back uh, to being young again because they don't have experience to run things and so forth. And that makes these people very disappointed. These people, I mean, the young people, very disappointed and very uh, disenchanted. One of, the, one of the areas where that really comes through clearly is uh, you you, really, you do trace in quite a lot of detail kind of how women changed in their lives, their expectations and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then the conservative backlash against exactly those changed behaviors is it's really quite striking. Precisely. I mean, this is also uh, one of the, I suppose, kind of a, I like to think about the kind of a perspective that women uh, in the context of uh, the countries of the Middle East, yeah, yeah, their subjectivity tremendously changes during the uprisings because they, for the maybe first time, experience uh, inequality, like men to do things that like men do, shoulder by shoulder with them and they, and they stay, you know, overnight in the Medan Tahrir or other places and so forth. And this is a transformation and in the conversation with them and they say that it is a transformation. But then uh, after the uh, uprisings, uh, you know, this very behavior seems to have uh, caused incredible anxiety on the part of, you know, patriarchy, both official and non-official. Mm -hmm. And there is an incredible back against these very women who had participated in revolution. And, you know, they had helped to bring you know, these revolution to erosion. And that uh, has generated an incredible sort of uh, uh, outrage on their part and also activism. And, you know, women both in Tunisia and Egypt that have uh, investigated uh, really unprecedentedly really participated being social activists, activists. A lot of, you know, women who were pursuing, I don't know, jobs in, uh, uh, in um, what do you call it, um, advertising or, uh, you know, in, in the media and so forth, basically forget about it and became a social activist and working on NGOs and so forth, as they said, to do something for their uh, countries. But in the process also, they really uh, transformed. Uh, I think uh, uh, a lot of them really uh, questioned uh, a lot of sort of gender norms that they had taken for granted. Um, uh, a, a, a good number of them, at least in Egypt, uh, they took off their veil. Uh, and, uh, and especially we know that you know, putting on veil is much easier than taking it off, right? And yet, of course, they did. Uh, and uh, a, a large number of them, the so-called mustaqillat, uh, uh, they uh, basically left home 
you know, as a, a unmarried, uh, you know, young women who traditionally, you know, live with their families, they left home to form their own families, yeah, their own, I mean, households. And, and, uh, and of course, in terms of uh, being more assertive, uh, you know, going to cafes and uh, smoking shisha, and basically being present, you know, in the uh, public sphere. Um, so these, I think, are uh, you know, significant changes. We can also look at, you know, divorce, uh, you know, uh, statistics and so forth, um, because they're doing a lot of women they don't want to go through, you know, the kind of relationship that they had in the past. And you can actually ex- extend this to what happened to the young people, the poor people, especially in the, in the urban areas and the rural areas. In the rural areas, uh, there have been a lot of sort of land takeover, um, especially by the small farmers, um, a lot of uh, not paying their debt, you know, to the banks that, yeah, uh, or asking, you know, the, demanding the government to forgive their debts. Um, in Tunisia, they were very adamant to maintain the resources that they had in their own uh, localities. Uh, and, uh, and there was a tremendous, really, uh, sort of push for unionization uh, in the rural areas both in Egypt and uh, in Tunisia. Uh, of course, you know, in the uh, urban uh, areas, we, we know, and I had already had documented before, but during the revolution, we've been a tremendous, again, uh, you know, a seizure of land, you know, for uh, construction uh, or seizure of apartments, uh, you know, uh, basically half-built apartments, uh, uh, often belonging to the government, and basically they, uh, you know, uh, took over. A number of them later on were evicted, uh, evicted, but still, you know, some actually uh, have uh, kept uh, maintained. So such examples are a lot, and I've given in the book as you know, I cannot one of, go through. One of, one of the things that's that you know, follows directly from that is that in this kind of analysis, because you're talking about so many people and social formations and things, it doesn't lend itself to a grand narrative or to kind of really clear causal uh, causal arguments. Um, and so I imagine it'll be quite frustrating for many social scientists, but also might be getting at something different in terms of how we think about political change. Uh, I, I don't quite, can you elaborate on this? Uh, well, it's, it's just, you know, if you're not looking at a single outcome, like the regime falling or transition to democracy, but you're looking at these yeah. like sometimes contradictory changes within women's subjectivities advancing, um, but then having facing a societal backlash or more labor oh, mobilization, but actually right. employment yeah. opportunities. And it becomes much more complex when you get down yes. into the uh, this kind of analysis. It is true. It is, it is uh, much more, uh, uh, it is much more complex. Uh, I mean, what? I think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I know, <laughs> but but it's still, you know, if one to sort of somewhat uh, to generalize it, and uh, I mean, uh, you know, one can read, you know, these struggles and the backlash they that they have against the very dynamics of the post-revolution uh, itself. Mm-hmm. In other words. Uh, the general thing that I can say about all of them is that 
revolutions open up opportunities, possibilities uh, for those people who had been uh, damped down by the state control. Now, because of the lack of you know, collapse of state control, there's a new energy comes out from the societies. You know, you know uh, workers take uh, over factories to run by themselves, the young people do things in their neighborhoods and so on and so forth. So this is pretty common, I think, in many revolutions, yeah? And among many subaltern groups, according to the possibilities that each group has. Uh, for instance, the, in the Iranian revolution, uh, uh, I don't know about actually these Egyptian uh, Arab Spring, but in, in particularly in the Iranian revolution, unemployed people, they didn't have any workplace, they didn't have any locale to control. So they would go and uh, or, uh, direct the traffic, hmm. you know, traffic, you know, uh, help out the police, you know, cars, you know, you stop, you go and so forth to do something, you know what I mean? This energy and, uh, uh, but then um, when the consolidation of power uh, comes, especially uh, the, uh, uh, the new regime that is not necessarily a new political class, that is not necessarily responsive to these, you know, flare up of energy from uh, below, uh, then the confrontation begins. Yeah, because, you know, there is a tendency to bring by some of them to bring kind of older type, uh, you know, order. Mm -hmm. Factories, yeah, factories, landowners should still have their own land and so on and so forth. And that generates of uh, uh, conflict. It's, um, not really, it's not really the full, yeah. we don't really talk about this in the book, but it seems like uh, from your analysis, you wouldn't be all that surprised by the support for Kaisa Saeed um, in, uh, in Tunisia and his kind of overturning of the formal transition. Because it seems like those are exactly the people you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. I mean, also in the, the book, uh, I, I suppose, and I was saying that uh, because of the nature of the uh, revolution, that uh, exactly, I think, uh, neither in Egypt, even not even in Tunisia and other places, the political question remained unresolved. The political question, I mean, the question of state transformation, transformation mm -hmm. of the state. And also the social question, the social question of poverty, inequality, and so on and so forth. These were not really addressed adequately. And so if you have now procedural democracy as in Tunisia, it was actually somewhat, one could see uh, that it is very fragile because it's those social questions. And a lot of people, poor people and subaltern people were concerned had not been uh, really addressed. And uh, in Tunisia, they were not addressed. And they basically, these poor people, blame uh, maybe for good reason, the politicians yeah. who were you know, running the place. And perhaps they are looking for a savior. Huh? Mm -hmm. And they say it comes you know, to act <laughs> as a savior. Uh, and uh, a man who is part of the establishment, but nevertheless is, you know, appears to be anti-establishment, anti-politicians and so on and so forth. And uh, it is a very sad story, I think. 
But it was easy to see from, from, I think, your vantage point, how alienated the youth and the middle class poor were from the new transitional regime. And so early, and so early. I mean, it's, I was astonished, especially when investigating about the you know, youth politics in Tunisia, especially. From the very first year, they got, they got disappointed mm-hmm. and disenchanted. And they began to really hate, you know, politicians. And they began even hate politics, right? Uh, politics. And that became very dangerous, you know what I mean? And uh, so that, that became the outcome because um, although a lot, a lot of them actually went to do kind of local things, local politics and uh, self-help, and, uh, uh, but, but uh, their disen- disenchantment with respect to you know, elections and parliament and presidency, all these institutions was quite astonishing, but expectable. Well, this has been really interesting. We've been speaking with Asaf Bayad about his uh, new book, Revolutionary Life. Um, It's been a real pleasure talking with you about this. I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Thank you so much. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's article segment, we're joined by Mauro Youssef, an NSF postdoc in sociology at University of Southern California, um, author of a new article, Unlikely Feminist Coalitions, just published in Social Politics. Mauro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this article. Well, the article is looking at two women's rights organizations that were created during the Arab Spring uprisings in Tunisia. One is Islamist and one is secularist. Uh, They're called the League for Women Voters. That's the secularist. And Tunisiet, which is Tunisian women, is the Islamist. And what I look at is a short-lived coalition between these two women's organizations around women's rights. And what is the coalition uh, attended to achieve? The coalition had two goals. One was to try to reduce violence against women. And the other one was to increase women's political participation. So by the time the coalition came together in 2018, the government had already passed progressive gender legislation in 2011, 2018, and 2017 on electoral gender quotas and gender-based violence. So the coalition in part was there to try to push the government to implement these laws. And what's so unusual about this? Think of it this way for the non-Middle East audience. It's like Republicans and Democrats coming together today in the climate that we have in the US. You don't expect Islamists and seculars to work together. We didn't at the civil society level, and this was the on, one of the only coalitions I found among women activists that were secular and Islamist. And so there's very high levels of polarization is what you're saying. Absolutely. And um, so you have these two organizations, let's talk about them a little bit and uh, kind of what each of them is about and uh, you know what they're trying to achieve. So you have the one that you describe as the secularist. Uh, tell us about them. So the League for Women Voters, or La Ligue d'Electrice Tunisienne, which I call LET, they're called LET, Mm -hmm. they were created in 2011 by staunch secular feminists who were trained by secular feminists during the Ben Ali regime. 
So these women came together, they're professional women, you know, uh, lawyers, judges, professors, psychologists, and they came together because they really wanted to protect women's rights from getting hijacked by Islamists once Islamists took over in Tunisia in 2011. So their motivation was we gained rights under Ben Ali and Bourguiba. Let's retain these rights and increase women's political participation. So of course, there's a long from their inception. Of, there's a long right. tradition of women's organization in Tunisia. There, there is. There's women's activism has been on the scene since the 70s in Tunisia, officially. And so, so this, this was a new organization bringing them together. This was a new organization that said, not on my watch in a way. We mm-hmm. secured rights in the past. We will not let Islamists or other political actors take away these rights after the revolution. And then Tunisiet, uh, you describe as Islamist. Correct. So they don't self-describe as Islamist, but I base that uh, according to how other women's organizations saw them Mm -hmm. and on some of their beliefs that have to do with religion. So they were, some of them were student activists in the 90s, but most of them have had a relative or a loved one uh, that was exiled or jailed under the Ben Ali regime for their Islamist activities and their criticism of the regime. And were they so these really- women were also, uh, one second. So these women were also part of the professional class. So mm-hmm. we're talking professors, accountants, things like that. And were they affiliated with the Anahda movement? Not officially, but in a way, they served as the think tank for Anahda. They trained Nahda women to run for office and stay in office. And one of them became a Nahda MP, one mm. of the founders. And so what, um, what then makes them feminist? What makes them feminist in the most basic uh, use of the term is that they do want women's equality, especially when it comes to political rights. They want women to participate in the political process during democratization and beyond. And they are self-proclaimed feminists. So a lot of people have asked me, are they actually feminist? And it's not my judgment call. It's not a moral decision. My job as a a social scientist is to take what people tell me, interrogate it, but also add my own analysis and report what they say. And so so you have these two organizations then that uh, you saw coming in and uh, you, you focus the article on this 2018 moment when they come together in this, what you call this unlikely feminist coalition. So tell us what, do you, what happened? What, what made that come to be? So two, a, a few factors, but we have to look at the political, macro political level at that time in politics in Tunisia. And at that time, there was cooperation between Al-Nahda, the Islamist political party, and the other secularist parties in power, including Nidat Tunis. And so at that time, I think there was a, a moment, a brief moment, a political opportunity for these organizations to work together without facing too much backlash. It was in the air, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the coalition came together under a European grant So that's another motivator for bringing, for them working together. They were attracted to the resources available. 
they had similar issues in mind that they were working on in parallel and they came together to work on them. And so in the article, you identify four big factors that you say brought them together, kind of this converging stream of things. Can you tell us a little bit about these and how how that played out? Sure. So what I did was I brought together the conversations on social movement coalitions and the conversations on feminist coalitions. And I put them together to try to explain the Tunisian case and what we have here. So combining the two literatures, I identified facing similar threats as from the social movement literature as one key driver for their coalition. I also identified working on similar tasks prior to coalition formation, also found in the social movement literature. Mm -hmm. And then from the feminist literature, I found that they worked on, they had common grievances, gendered grievances, and that they shared a feminist identity. Not one thing to say is their identities were not identical and identities are always changing and, and shifting depending mm -hmm. on the issues, but they shared something. The essence of it was to increase women's political rights. Now, what was the shared threat which brought them together? So funny enough, they wouldn't necessarily see it, but there were people calling for uh, reducing women's rights on both sides. There were Islamist extremists that wanted women to not participate in the public sphere and in the political process. And then the secularists were worried about, so, okay. So they both had threats, but they didn't see them as the same at the time. The Islamists were really afraid that they could go back. If they don't secure their rights, they could go back to the nineties, the era that was a nightmare for them of marginalization and oppression. The seculars were really afraid that this could be a new era where they lose their rights. Mm -hmm. So both of them are concerned about losing their current place in the public sphere and in politics. So they both- And both of, go ahead. No, so they both, they both see threats, just not the same threat. Right, so similar threats to curtail women's rights and their participation in the public sphere, but not by the same actor. Mm -hmm. It's by each other the political parties that they belong to. And then you also talk then about shared experience and uh, working on this issue. Right. So since they were both created in 2011, they have been pushing for uh, gender electoral quotas and eliminating violence against women. So these issues they worked on for six or seven years before they came together and they both contributed to pushing legislation and influencing politicians to pass that legislation on these issues. And so this then built some perhaps uh, personal relationships or some degree of trust? I think they saw that they were stronger together mm -hmm. rather than working alone. I have a separate piece about why the government passed gender-related GBV legislation and uh, opened up you know, shelters and stuff during the COVID pandemic. And it was in part because of this bipartisan support for eliminating violence against women. It wasn't seen as a polarizing issue. Mm -hmm. But then you also talk about the issue of inheritance reform and how that proved to be too much for this coalition to bear. Correct. So, so why, why was this I, different? 
So that's an interesting question. They can agree that they both want a, a bigger place in politics. They can agree that they want to protect their rights, their political rights, but they cannot ag agree on social and sexual issues because Tunisia refers back to the Quran and basing inheritance on Islam and Islamic values and interpretations of, of uh, the Sharia, whereas Tunisia is inherently secularist and rejects it. They mm -hmm. want a separation of church and state or mosque and, and politics in Tunisia. And so President Al-Sebsi brings forward an inheritance reform law. Correct. And that kind of brings the coalition to have to face these differences. Right. So the political coalition uh, collapsed around this issue in part, and this coalition also in part collapsed around this issue. This mm -hmm. was the, the straw that broke the camel's back because this is where they're inherently different, despite their similar concerns and similar uh, activism. So there's, there's two different ways to kind of read the, the case that you've presented in the article. One is that this is simply uh, a response to conditions and that kind of any movements could come together given the right circumstances. The other is that uh, there's something deeper about a shared feminist identity, which facilitates this kind of cooperation. Which, which one is more where you think the article is leading and, and the broader research that you're working on? I am very interested in inherently, uh, I think unlikely coalitions are interesting, but feminist coalitions are unique because they, they kind of reduce the noise of mm -hmm. other parts of your identity. And they make you focus on what's the most important for you in that particular moment to advance your interests and your concerns. And I'm building on this for my book and I'm looking at how Feminists and feminist organizations and political actors come together when women's rights are threatened, especially in moments of uncertainty, like democratic transitions. And the bigger picture is, it's these common grievances and concerns about backsliding on women's rights that make women sometimes momentarily push aside their political differences and focus on an issue that directly affects them. What do you think the, the biggest successes of these kinds of coalitions would be if you needed to identify them? <clears throat> well, for one, this coalition, while it was short-lived, it did show academics and Westerners that there's bipartisan in Tunisia, but identities are complex and interests are uh, also complex. And you can have people that fundamentally disagree on almost everything come together and work on an issue. And we saw the fruits of this labor like I mentioned in uh, a Middle East law and governance article that I just published, how parliament unanimously passed legislation to combat gender-based violence during the pandemic because the work was already done. It wasn't seen as a controversial, divisive issue anymore. It's really interesting. And so you, th you then said that in your, in your broader project, you're trying to broaden this out to a, a wider set of actors. Correct. So I'm looking at <clears throat> women in politics as well mm -hmm. during the democratic transition between 2011 and 2021 and seeing when they came together, especially when it was around gender related issues. <laughs> well, sounds really interesting. Can't wait to see what you do with it. Uh, thank, you, thank, thank you for joining us, Amara Youssef uh, at uh, USC, uh, and author of the new article, Unlikely Feminist <clears throat> Coalitions.
And I just want to say thank you, Mark, and thank you to Jill Schwedler, Ian Hartshorn, and Shreen Hafiz. You all gave me a lot of valuable feedback at the Poem Apps workshop during the pandemic. Well, it's so great to see it in print, and it's great to see how far you've come. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, Baro. Thank you. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Thomas Juno, the University of Ottawa, a fellow at the Sanaa Center for Strategic Studies. Uh, Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've been writing a lot over the last couple of years about the Houthi movement in Yemen and its relationship with Iran and its war strategy and the like. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, how that's evolved uh, in recent years and uh, kind of your take on what we should be looking at as we try and understand what the Houthis are doing uh, strategically right now. So just to, to give a bit of background in a few seconds, the Houthis emerged in the 1990s in Northwest Yemen as an insurgent movement uh, to protest against their cultural, political, economic marginalization by the government. It becomes violent in the 2000s. Uh, there's a series of, of rounds of fighting between 2004 and 10. At that point, there are rumors of contacts with Iran, but really not much indication. Towards the end of that fighting, around 2009, there's probably the beginning of limited Iranian involvement, but it's on a small scale, a bit of weapons, small arms, ammo, cash. Um, a few years after that, Iran probably starts seeing a bit more interest in, in the Houthis. Arab uprisings reach Yemen, the Houthis expand their, their foothold in the Northwest. Saudi Arabia is increasingly anxious. So from Iran's perspective, yes, their foreign policy energies are much more focused towards Iraq, towards Syria, Lebanon, the nuclear program, but they start thinking you know, the Houthis are, are increasingly appealing as, as a partner, especially as they become more influential and as Saudi Arabia becomes increasingly anxious. And that's really- I remember you wrote happens. at the time that there was kind of a low cost, high yield. Exactly, yeah. And then, uh, you know, in 2014, a critical moment happens when the Houthis take control of Sana'a, the capital, when, when you know, the whole country is in chaos because negotiations to, over a new constitution collapse. Uh, and this is really where Iran starts realizing, okay, we're going to start investing a lot more in our relationship with the Houthis. And they start delivering larger amounts of weapons and so on. 2015, in March, Saudi Arabia launches a military intervention at the head of a coalition of 10 states, including the UAE. Um, and, and this is really where Iran says, okay, now we're going to focus more on, on, on Yemen in a way that we haven't really done in previous years. Why? Because they really see a vulnerability for their biggest rival, which is Saudi Arabia. And that's that's the logic from, from Iran's perspective. So over the years of, of the war since 2015, we've seen Iran not only increase what they were already doing, i.e. small weapons, cash, uh, but also start a qualitative shift of sending more advanced, more lethal weapons. So obviously missiles and drones, as we've seen a lot in the media. In some cases, Iran sends these weapons more or less completely. In other cases, it sends more advanced parts by various smuggling networks and allows the Houthis to assemble them with locally produced parts. So what is really interesting here is how Iran has integrated the Houthis in, in the, the constellation right, of, of non-state actors that Iran supports in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, elsewhere in the region. Now the Houthis are a full-blown important member of, of that axis. And you've seen flows of advisors going uh, uh, from, from Hezbollah and uh, from Iraq. 
Yeah, and, and the word advisor is a key one because there has been no indication that Iranians have actually been fighting on the ground in Yemen. That being said, there are a, a there's a relatively small number of IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, advisors on the ground in Yemen. Uh, what is that number? I don't know. There's obviously no open source information on that. Several dozen, maybe in the low hundreds. But still, we're talking, relatively speaking, about a fairly small footprint, especially when you think about the extent of Iran's footprint in Iraq and Syria in particular. And as you said, there have also been a, a, a there has also been a significant role for Hezbollah in Yemen. This, this is an important development in recent years that, that changes the equation quite a bit. A fair bit of, of Iran's support for the Houthis happens directly, but another chunk happens indirectly with Hezbollah advisors, trainers in many cases, technicians who help the Houthis assemble, as I was saying, some of these weapons that are smuggled from from different parts of the world. Those Hezbollah advisors speak Arabic, they have better cultural uh, understanding than, than Iranian IRGC officers. Now, in, in your writing, um, you've taken on uh, this question, which, uh, you know, it has uh, an academic dimension to it, also comes up a lot in policy debates. And that's the question of how to think about it in terms of Houthis being an Iranian proxy and what that means in terms of their independence, in terms of their kind of subordination to Iranian strategic objectives. How do you read the evolution of that proxy or not proxy relationship uh, over time and where it is now? And that, that debate is a very important one, and notwithstanding Twitter debates uh, on that issue that can become a bit more shouting matches than, than anything uh, uh, serious, um, for me, the important point, whatever label we use, is that the Houthis are not a, a puppet or, a, or an arm of Iranian foreign policy. The Houthis are an indigenous movement in Yemen. They have their own interests. Uh, they have their own autonomous capacity of action. Their interests align with those of Iran in many cases, not 100% of the time, but of course in many cases. But, but the, the definition of the partnership that you do see in some more hawkish circles uh, in the US and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, which try to define the Houthis as, as, a, as an arm of Iranian foreign policy that obeys Iranian orders, that is simply not how the, the relationship works. It's not that the Houthis don't obey Iran or that they oppose Iran. Of course they don't. They work together. Their, their interests align in many ways but they don't obey Iranian orders. In some cases, there have been a few instances where the Houthis have actually disagreed with Iran, um, but these cases have, have, I think, been maybe exaggerated a, a bit in the sense that they don't indicate much. They, they, you know, there's not a lot of daylight between the two of them, uh, but they work together because they, they agree and on, on a lot. One, one way that I'd like to, to frame that is, you know, Iran has bandwagoned on Houthi successes as much as the opposite. We tend to view this as, you know, Iran supports the Houthis to push them in their own interests. Yes, but the Houthis have manipulated Iranian support uh, to advance their own interests as much as the reverse is true. So it's less proxy and more ally. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a that's a, in many ways it's a better characterization of the relationship. Of course, they're not equal partners. Iran is a state of 85 million people with significant resources. The Houthis are a non-state actor, though by now they're quasi state actor because they control a significant chunk of a country. Um, but but they're not, I, I find that the proxy label is, is not useful in that sense. Now, in terms of uh, the, the war itself, uh, you know, there's a couple of very significant developments that, um, that you know, affect how we might think about this. One of them was the, the, the major uh, Houthi advances um, into coalition control territory. 
um, in Maghreb and in, in that area. And then the other is this escalatory dynamic where you see growing Houthi missile and drone attacks on Saudi Arabia itself recently into the UAE. What do you what can we say about, you know, the dynamics of the war itself and uh, what this means for for the Houthis place in the region? So, uh, you know, the, the Houthis have emerged in recent years as the dominant military and political actor in Yemen. They are not strong enough to uh, win the war. If you define winning as seizing control of all or most of the territory of the country, but they control the capital. They control more than half of a territory with more than half of the population. They control most of the, a lot of the, the strategically important territory, especially on the Northwest quadrant of, of the country. Uh, one of the biggest prizes that they still don't have is a city called Ma'arib, which is geographically not quite, but close to the center of Yemen. Uh, it is important strategically because some of the key east-west uh, roads go through Ma'arib and also some of the roads that go towards the south. It is also strategically important because of hydrocarbon reserves. Yemen does not have a lot. It has never been a big oil or gas producer, but for a very poor country, being able to produce two or 300,000 uh, equivalents of barrels per day is significant to fuel your, your war effort. So the Houthis have been very clear that they want Ma'arib, which is still controlled by factions aligned with the internationally recognized government. They have been trying very hard to take the city throughout 2021. Some of the most violent fighting in Yemen was around uh, Ma'arib. And so far, they have not been able, but they've, they've seized territory uh, around uh, in, in areas around the city, in the province, and in the neighboring province of Shabwa. Um, now, just to, to take a few seconds on that, Shabwa is very important because if, if uh, we look at a map of Yemen, uh, you would see that Shabwa sort of cuts in half what we refer to as South Yemen. South Yemen is not the southern half of Yemen, if you imagine that it's just the southern bottom. Southern Yemen is kind of southeastern Yemen, if you want, but it is cut in the middle by the province of Shabwa, with on the one side in the west, Aden, and on the eastern side, the huge expanse of Hadramaut and Mahra, which is almost geographically half of the country. So if the Houthis have, had come to dominate Shabwa, that would have been strategically a major gain for them, but it would have been in particular, and this is where the UAE comes in, a significant loss for the UAE, because over the last few years, the UAE has really gained a strong foothold in the south of Yemen, what politically we call the south, um, and it has supported su separatist Southern actors. So as the Houthis were threatening parts of Shabwa for Southerners in Yemen, and therefore the UAE, this was becoming a major concern. So what we saw in recent weeks was a, a, a UAE-backed force called the Giants Brigade, which until now had been parked in Western Yemen on the Red Sea coast, moved to the province of Shabwa and pushed the Houthis back towards Ma'arib. Um, so this was, in recent weeks, a fairly significant development in terms of, of the evolution of, of the battle uh, on the ground, but also for the Houthis, one of the rare losses that they've suffered in, in recent years. Uh, so the Houthis were concerned with this, and, and this is what brought us to events in January 2022, when we've seen this spike in tension between the Houthis and the UAE. Including a missile attack uh, or drone attack on uh, Abu Dhabi. So what we then saw in, in mid-January 2022 was seemingly out of nowhere, but in practice directly the result of what we just described, uh, missile and or drones, it's still not entirely clear, attack on, on Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Um, in a way, that was a surprise. It was an escalation, but it didn't come out of a vacuum. It is a direct result of the Houthis wanting to send a signal to the UAE back off. 
Um, and this is, this is really interesting because in the last few years, there's been a, a somewhat implicit understanding between the Houthis and the UAE that they would mostly avoid hitting each other directly. The Houthis have been hitting Saudi Arabia with missiles and drones and other means a lot. Um, and Saudi Arabia has, of course, been hitting the Houthis back. The Houthis sort of, uh, the, the UAE, sorry, sort of backed away from directly confronting the Houthis since 2019. They've really focused their energies on building a foothold in the south. Um, that, in a way, worked for the UAE because they really built a, a strong network of influence in the south. But it was always risky that it would bring them in direct confrontation at some point with the Houthis, which is what we are seeing uh, in January. Um, so uh, as a result of that, when we saw uh, the, the Houthis uh, target Abu Dhabi and Dubai with drones and missile strikes, it was a way for the Houthis to try to restore this balance uh, with the UAE, whereby they would avoid confronting each other directly. Um, is it going to work? That's a, a really interesting question. But, but strategically, from the Houthi perspective, it makes sense. It is rational. Why? Because the Houthis have limited means to hurt the UAE directly. Uh, but one area where the UAE has a vulnerability that the Houthis can exploit is, is uh, the UAE's image, its branding as a, as a nexus of international trade, as, a, as an island of stability in the middle of, of, of the Middle East where international businesses can go and, and exploit that, that stability. So if the Houthis are able to damage that image, uh, they can really hurt the UAE. And, and clearly that is, that is what they're trying to do at this point. Well, and the problem, of course, is it's very difficult to control these escalatory dynamics. You can send signals, but what those signals lead to is often beyond the control of those trying to send them. Yes, and, and that's why there, there's a really a delicate balancing act being played by multiple actors at this point. The UAE wants to protect its image of stability. That is arguably its most important foreign policy priority. At the same time, it doesn't want to be seen, to be perceived as backing down in the face of threats and, and lose face. The Houthis, on their part, want to send that message to the UAE and they want to send it strongly. At the same time, the Houthis it was to their advantage to, to focus the hostilities much more on Saudi Arabia and have that kind of a delicate balance uh, with the UAE where they avoided targeting each other directly. And then you bring in, bring in Iran to that, to that really delicate balancing act. From Iran's perspective, this is complicated. Iran and the UAE had been making some progress in managing tension and rivalry between the two of them in recent weeks. They're not friends. They're not going to become friends, but they've been able to, you know, bring the temperature down a bit. Iran wants to keep that, and so does the UAE. At the same time, Iran does appreciate the Houthis pushing back on the UAE like that, especially when UAE-backed forces were making gains against the Houthis in southern Yemen. So Iran here wants to support the, UAE, the Houthis in pushing back against the UAE, but does have an interest in this not escalating. So what we have right now between Iran, the UAE, and the Houthis is this really delicate balancing act where nobody really wants to back down, but nobody wants an escalation. That's the theory, but the practice, as, as you just said, is, is very fragile. Well, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, Thomas Juno, thank you so much for joining us and talking this through, and um, thanks for being on the program. Thank you.